So Indian women's offending looks very different from Sri Lankan women's offending. Just between the two contexts, uh, lots of people don't even understand that they're two very different countries. Uh, Sri Lanka is a primarily Buddhist country. India has a huge Hindu population, right? And um, and you see that like there's so much diversity in terms of just the kind of crimes women have committed. So in India, one of the most shocking things was the amount of women who were incarcerated for dowry-related offences. You don't see that in Sri Lanka, even though Sri Lanka has the practice of dowry. You see more women incarcerated for drug-related offences. So just the kind of offending they're doing is different. Hi there, you're listening to the podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, and I'm a PhD candidate chatting with early career researchers about their academic journeys. Today, I'm talking with Antasha Baudraj, who is from India and went from a Bollywood career to an academic career with two masters in social work and criminal justice. Currently, Antasha is doing her PhD on women in prisons in India and Sri Lanka, and through interviews, she tries to understand their stories and what has led them to commit crimes from a social and cultural perspective. I can't wait to introduce you to this incredible woman, but first, I have to let you all know that our podcast also has a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram account. Check it out to find out more about our guests, and don't forget to like and share. We also have a YouTube channel, which is linked to a blog on our website, that aims to provide tips and advice by and for peers. So, connect with us, we'd love to hear your stories and tips. But before you do that, stick with us while I introduce you to Natasha Bardwaj. Natasha started a career as a Bollywood actress and has appeared in three movies. She changed her career path in 2008 and decided to get a BA in English Literature at the University of Mumbai, followed by an MA in social work at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, and then she continued with another MA in criminal justice at Rutgers University, Newark. That's where she continued with her PhD in criminal justice, and her dissertation title is Exploring Pathways to Incarceration Among Indian and Sri Lankan Women. Natasha already has a few journal article publications on her name. She has received numerous research grants and fellowships for her work, and has presented her research at various conferences, including our Early Career Researchers Virtual Conference back in September, that was also linked to our podcast and the Minerva Center. If you'd like to know more about her research, you can find Natasha's 10-minute presentation on our YouTube channel, and I would definitely recommend it. Lastly, you should know that Natasha is also the founder of the South Asian Institute of Crime and Justice Studies in India, but I don't want to say too much about it yet because I think she can much better explain why she founded it and what its goals are. All right, so welcome to our podcast, Natasha. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing? Thank you. It's so it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You're welcome. It's all your story, though. I didn't make it up. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you hear it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I've done a bit. I've done a bit. Right. Still at it, but yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that calls for a cheering. So I'm going to pour myself my amaretto that I brought with me right here. And then we can get started. What did you bring with you today? So I um, I moved back to India a year ago and I've been in the search for really good coffee. So I'm having my second cup of coffee for today. It's this uh, Indian company called Blue Tokai. So I'm drinking their mm. coffee today. All right. 
Cheers. Cheers. Cool. Let's kick off with a few short questions then. All right. The first one is, what does your perfect morning look like? <laughs> oh, honestly, for me, a perfect morning is a late morning. I'm not a morning person. I, I used to always think at the you, I'll turn like 30 and I'll start waking up early. No. So for me, the perfect morning is waking up. Um, I chant. So I, you know, I, I follow this practice called SGI Buddhism. So I do that, uh, then get a quick workout in, uh, and then get a cup of coffee. I honestly don't like getting to work right away. And then within like a half an hour uh, after like my workout is when I start uh, thinking about work. So morning coffee, and only then can I hit the books and be like, this is what I have to do. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm kind of happy to hear that because I've had quite a few guests who woke up really extremely early at least for my standards, in the morning. And I was like, whoa, I'm the only academic who's not doing it. But then in the last few episodes, I actually had guests just like you and me who are not morning persons. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I was told, in fact, when I started my PhD, I was told, you know, you're going to like have to give up your sleep. And I remember calling my advisor and she was like, you know, you figure out your own life. And I'm happy to share that in all these years, I'm not underslept. I'm definitely overworked at many times, but... I managed to get all my sleep in. So, yeah. Great. Okay. Second one is, what did you like most about being an actress before you started your academic journey? So, actually, my academic journey and my acting journey were happening at the same time. Uh, the place I got my undergrad, St. Xavier's, Bombay. Uh, you know, lots of my friends were, like, either working behind the scenes and stuff. So, I got audition. That's how I ended up auditioning for all these uh, ad films and uh, films eventually. I don't know. I think I like the adulation and the attention. I did not like the acting part because I wasn't great at it. But um, it was fun pretending to be someone else, especially one of the films I worked on called Amras, where I got to be like, a, I guess, the high school version of me, which was not very nice. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed the acting part. Um, but I also really enjoyed the attention. I have to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. And then today, the day that we are recording this episode is International Women's Day. Uh, so happy Women's Day to you. Right back at you. Thanks. I wanted to ask you, how are you celebrating? Uh, how am I celebrating? Well, uh, the good news is both my parents got vaccinated today. So I'm oh, really happy great. from COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how I'm celebrating is I'm actually working on a piece. Um, I've been reflecting on my career and since I've moved back to India, I've been really working on disseminating whatever research I do in a in a in a way that it's accessible to everyone. So I'm writing a very um personal piece on marriage and what it is to be 33 and not married in my country and how the laws look. So it's been tough, but that's how I'm celebrating by reading and writing something that I think has been long time coming for me. So yeah. Okay, I'm very curious about that piece, so do share it with us when it's ready. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm curious to learn more about your academic career. Um, so as mentioned, you were an actress, right, before you started the academic journey or it overlapped a little bit in the start too. So when and why did you decide to switch then to academia? So I think uh, I was interested in studying crime uh, from, um, I don't know, 11th grade. I saw Silence of the Lambs and I was like, oh, I want to be like Agent Starling, right? Uh, it was okay. a very like pop culture idea. <laughs> and then uh, 
my undergrad, I got exposed to like working with uh, in these homes for younger kids who were, you know, in trouble with the law. So I started to really wonder how it works, got curious. Um, India, uh, actually South Asia is very interesting. Criminal justice doesn't really exist as a field. Uh, it exists, but it's still in its nascent stages. So that's why I kind of had to get these degrees in social work and then move abroad to really get that training. So, uh, yeah, I remember uh, when I was getting my bachelor's in English, I was doing, uh, you know, psychology on the side. Um, and that's how I started to get curious. And I feel like, uh, you know, there was all this talk about people commit crimes, but nobody was kind of talking about why. And then when I got my first master's in social work, I actually got to work in a prison as a social worker. And that's when it was really interesting because I still remember my first fieldwork experience where this woman kind of, uh, you know, uh, put her head on my shoulder and dictated uh, how she had gone on to kill her husband. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing was um, when I came out and I like, you know, I shared with my supervisor and she asked me, she's like, were you scared? And I was like, no. And she was like, well, that's something to think about. That, you know, this work doesn't uh, scare you in any way. And, Yeah. And as I started to work in the field, I realized I didn't have the right tools to really collect data. Uh, When I was coming back to the classroom, um, all these theories were not South Asia or India specific. Mm. So that's where I got really curious. And then I decided, you know, I I, I liked acting, but uh, it was really tough, to be honest. I got rejected a lot. And uh, I think there was a point where I knew that this wasn't for me. But it was great money and, you know, I loved uh, hanging out and partying. So I kept up with it. But I really just, it was a pretty easy transition into just working full time into the work I'm doing now. So, yeah, that's that was basically the journey. And then, you know, repeating my master's was tough. But I knew I needed that because I needed to get to a point where I can create very India specific or South Asia specific theories. So I needed the training as much as I was like, I don't want to repeat my master's, but best decision ever. So, yeah. Okay, so um, I hear from you that the the academic world is not the only world that is filled with rejections, because obviously (laughs) in the filming world and movies, it's the same. Uh, But maybe that helped you (laughs) in a way to get through academia more smoothly. Mm -hmm. And then in academia, you actually found something very interesting. For yourself to explore but also a gap in the literature that's very interesting yeah okay and you already said something about having done two masters and that was actually something i also wanted to ask about because you have one in social work from india and one in criminal justice from the us uh, and then you continue to do the phd so why did you do two and how did the switch from india to the us come about right I did too, because honestly, the first time I applied to PhD programs, I got rejected from every single place. So it was really interesting. I applied and I had spoken to all these PhD programs and like, yeah, you'll definitely get admitted. And then I didn't get admitted anywhere. And it was devastating because I was prepared to leave and start the PhD journey. Um, Then my current school was really, uh, you know, uh, I had this idea to uh, just, I can't remember who told me, but they were like, you know, uh, just why don't you uh, ask them if they would admit, you know, move your application to the master's program. So I did that and uh, I was admitted right away. And uh, it was amazing because uh, within a week of getting to Rutgers, uh, I was introduced to my advisor who I still work with to, uh, till today. And, uh, you know, uh, within six months, I want to say, uh, it was like, oh, you should be applying to the PhD program. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and there was a lot of hesitation because I was like, I've been rejected before. But, you know... 
uh, when I started to apply, um, it was tough re- reapplying after all that rejection was really tough. But as I did that, I realized that I had better skills. I had a better network. So I applied. Amazingly, I got into everywhere that I applied in the second round with full funding. So that was great. Wow, what a difference. <laughs> I know. And you know, uh, I'll be honest, I will never forget the first day of my PhD program uh, when all that rejection made sense because the PhD is tough. And, you know, you asked me this thing about transitioning from an Indian system to an American system. I think uh, having the foundation of my master's helped me, uh, kind of prepared me for success in the PhD program. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was going into a program where I had to like really, uh, you know, we had something called like a stats boot camp. I'm not, I wasn't a great stats person then. So there was just so much to deal with. But by then I had like a personal foundation. So it it was easier. I won't say it was easy. Mm -hmm. It was easier Mm -hmm. to transition. And uh, I actually got my high school degree from American school. So I had been an exchange student in the 11th grade in America. So I had a little bit of an idea of how the American system works versus Indian education system. So the switch was, it wasn't too bad. You know, the master's level felt like, oh my God, this is so easy as compared to what you do in India, where (laughs) it's exhausting the amount I had to do sometimes. But when I switched to the PhD, it was, it was tough. I, I remember the first six months, like being like, hmm, let's see if I survive this. So yeah, it's a steep learning curve. So in the end, the MA was a bit of a a compromise after having been rejected so many times, which is very painful. But I'm glad you soldiered on. And after that MA, with more information and and being prepared for the PhD, got in. And fully funded, you said. So that's really great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And the great thing is, you know, when I was in the master's program, I could, I was able to understand who I wanted to work with. It, you know, by then I had kind of understood that. Uh, so my advisor's name is Professor Jodie Miller, and I had already been introduced to her. I liked our working styles. Uh, uh, she was very committed, uh, you know, to helping me uh, establish really South Asian understandings of criminology and criminal justice. And that's something I was really clear on. I was like, I am not moving to America to change my research agenda, even though that, you know, that um, a kind of temptation was there because there were cool projects happening. Like who didn't want to work on these cool projects with like different agencies, but I kind of soldiered on and I mean, full credit to my advisor who told me, you know, you can make this happen. So yeah, that's great. It's very good to have that support. And when we're talking about support, yeah. what was the reaction of your family, your friends back in India of doing a PhD abroad? And I mean, you did go by yourself, didn't you? Yeah, um, I have the world's most supportive family. I am so grateful. Uh, you know, 99% of my career and where I am today uh, is because I've have a, had a very supportive family. Uh, you know, my dad has always kind of told me I was born to do different things. Because I've had, you know, different people be like, why would you want to study crime? Why would you want to go into prisons mm-hmm. and do the work? Um, and talk to murderers. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 you know, again, the fact that I'm female comes into play, right? You won't be safe in this. And it's true. I've been in situations where uh, now when I look at it, I'm like, oh, okay, that was not a great situation for me to be in, right? Mm. But uh, my family has been very supportive. They've always kind of uh, supported me emotionally, financially, when, you know, things were tough. Uh, maybe my stipend wasn't really supporting me well. So yeah, uh, that ways, uh, even moving back to uh, India, they've been very supportive. And uh, yeah, I don't think my career would have ever been able to come this far without the strong social support system I have. And same for my friends, you know, I, um, 
I was away for eight years. I've come back to the same friend group. They've all been very supportive. Some of them don't fully understand what I do, but they get it. They've all memorized criminal justice now. It's cute. So yeah, that's good to hear. And I'm very glad that your parents now got the vaccine. So I hope everyone will be okay. <laughs> yes. Please tell me a bit more about your PhD research on women in prisons in India and Sri Lanka. What are you really trying to find out here? So the idea is to really build a South Asia-specific uh, criminal justice research. So currently, a lot of the research in prisons in uh, in the world is focused on the global north, mm-hmm. right? So most of our studies are happening in America and basically that geographic area. And then again, most of the research is on men. It's like women are just an afterthought, even when it's crime in prisons. So uh, the first part of my research was conducting uh, around 100 interviews in one Sri Lankan prison, Impressive. for which we partnered, uh, you know, with another university uh, where I was able to train the research assistants and they did the data collection. So, you know, uh, since we want to be culturally sensitive and all, we wanted people who were from the local context uh, going to help us with the uh, data collection. The second part is 85 interviews that were conducted in three prisons in India. Ideally, I wanted to partner with an institute and get research assistance for that too. But the Ministry of Prisons here kind of just uh, shot that down. Um, getting access to prisons in India was really tough. I uh, was rejected 45 different times. So oh. that's again where my advisor, my family, especially uh, my father's support was huge <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, it was a lot of just keep keep trudging on because it's good work and has to be done. So I did all those interviews uh, and yeah, we asked women questions about basically uh, their entire lives up till incarceration. We asked them about their childhood, adulthood, relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's it's a starting point, honestly. I don't want to say like, you know, we're going to come up with these theories, which will tell you why women commit crimes, but yeah. we don't know anything about these women right now. We don't know anything. Uh, we know very basic stuff about what they look like. You know, recently, I want to say in the last 10 years, there was maybe one study, at least that's published. Maybe studies are happening, but this is a published study. So yeah, so, mm-hmm. and that was in India, Sri Lanka, I don't think there were too many. So yeah, now I'm like reading, uh, writing, just telling these women stories so that we can really understand what the needs of these women in prison are and what we can do to really start building theories that are specific to South Asia when it comes to uh, women committing crimes. Right. And it's so important. I hear you when you say that there's not much research about the global south Mm -hmm. and that most of it is still focused on the global north Uh, coming from migration studies, which is what I'm doing. It's the same, even though we know that most of uh, people who are displaced from their homes are hosted by other countries or cities in the global south and not in the north. Um, But because there's so much research about, for example, the refugee crisis in Europe, it seems like everyone is coming to Europe, which is not the case. Exactly. So I think it's very important work you're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, the biggest thing is uh, the studies set in a different context don't say much. Like they serve as a great guiding point for me to build my research. But I can't use what's going on in uh, America uh, to explain what's going on in India or anywhere else in South Asia. Because culturally, politically, economically, socially, we're all so different. So... And have you found any um, starting points for theories yet? Yeah, plenty. So these are all, uh, you know, I was actually just uh, looking at something that I was writing. So Indian women's offending looks very different from Sri Lankan women's offending. Just between the two contexts, uh, lots of people don't even understand that they're two very different countries. 
Sri Lanka is a primarily Buddhist country. India has a huge Hindu population, right? And um, and you see that like there's so much diversity in terms of just the kind of crimes women have committed. So in India, one of the most shocking things was the amount of women who were incarcerated for dowry-related offenses. Okay. You don't see that in Sri Lanka, even though Sri Lanka has the practice of dowry. You see more women incarcerated for drug-related offenses. Hmm. So just the kind of offending they're doing is different. But uh, one of the cool things that binds the two contexts is that uh, both of them were British colonies at one point, hmm. right? And I think uh, a lot of India and Sri Lanka, a lot of South Asian discourse talks about the post-colonial effect and how we're still reeling with it. And you see that in the, in these women's histories as well, because you're seeing how uh, colonialism and then basically there was like a pushback in both countries to uh, stick to what a typical Indian woman should look like or a typical Sri Lankan woman. And in that, how narrowly we define women's roles. Hmm. And, you know, in that tug of war, you can see how women's offending is kind of being... Uh, contextualized. You have to understand it in that context, right? So in India, women are really being incarcerated for family-related violence. So you'll see, you know, it's as a mother-in-law, as a mother, as a wife, a lot of her offending is happening. Uh, in Sri Lanka, the, the British impact had more to do with kind of segregating the workspace. So hmm. Sri Lankan women, uh, you know, don't really have um, access to too many jobs. So You'll see a lot of women who are incarcerated. Uh, it's more economic, drug-related offenses. Right. So there are so many starting points. But uh, this has been very fascinating to me, uh, you know, as an Indian who who doesn't fully understand uh, exactly how much the British rule impacted us. It's amazing to see what it's done for women's rights and how, you know, until this day, a lot of the things uh, we're reeling with is undoing that colonial hangover. But we don't understand it like that. You know, India is going through this interesting thing where we're like, yes, we're pushing for women's rights. But nobody's really talking about how the roots of India were not bad. It was more of the British rule that kind of ruined it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I liked how you said, and I think it's a good term, uh, the colonial hangover, right? Which is what you're still dealing with. Uh, and we see that in the, in the Middle East a lot, too, uh, where I'm at now. Um but that's, of course, something of the past that we have to deal with. But how do we move forward with that? Like, do you have any ideas about what we could change to change the future of these women who might potentially become offenders? I think you have to expand women's roles. Women's roles are too, like, you know, when I'm looking at especially the Indian data, it's just so depressing how women's roles are tied to just their family. You know, in fact, today also being International Women's Day, Someone sent out this, um, uh, like, Happy Women's Day, uh, you're a great mother, you're a great daughter. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love how, you know, women are celebrated as an extension of the roles, right? Mm -hmm. Mother, daughter, friend, sister, wife. Um, and you see that in my data as well. Like, every woman is just reeling with, like, you know, I didn't do well as a mother, I didn't do well as a mother-in-law. And I feel like uh, this sort of, um, we need more space, we need more social space, to uh, redefine how women can be in society. I mean, I wish we didn't have to define how women are in society, right? So there's a part of, uh, you know, definitely South Asia that has to, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you an example in Sri Lanka. Technically, women are not supposed to buy alcohol after 8 p.m. Uh, and it's shocking that rule is not really, uh, that law is not really implemented. You can still buy alcohol, but it exists. Why does it exist in theory? 
Mm. Right? So I feel like we have to change laws 100%. But, you know, I, I feel like a cultural, sh- a larger cultural shift is needed because you can change laws all you want. But if people don't respect the law and they have these views that this is the spaces women belong in, then we're doomed. I, I was reading something on Bangladesh recently where this, uh, it was a really good article about public spaces and a man, uh, man's point of view is presented and he says like, if I see a woman walking in the middle of the street, I feel like that's not fair and I want to be violent towards her because that space is reserved for a, a man. Wow. So, you know, when you think of things wow. like that, you're like, no law in the world can stop this person from really, um, I mean, yeah, laws do deter people, but you have to bring about a cultural shift and uh, and i think uh, it's happening slowly sometimes it's frustrating because i feel like the movements we have in india sometimes are very disconnected with the reality of what india looks like india is still you know largely rural so uh, yeah i'm really trying to honestly um, call out my own bias call out the bias of people and women who look like me who have a lot of privilege that's my starting point so let's see where i go with this so uh, in addition to the PhD research and the dissertation writing that you're doing, I've noticed on your resume that you're also teaching quite a lot. So I wanted to ask you, do you enjoy teaching at all? And what kind of courses have you taught? So I actually love teaching. Um, and my teaching style is completely inspired by professors I liked and did not like. Uh, because when I was in high school, uh, middle school, uh, I really struggled in the classroom. I was like, oh. you know, every teacher is against me. And then I had some really good teachers. So uh, that's where my style is inspired from. Um, I'm teaching mostly courses uh, at Rutgers in the criminal justice uh, curriculum. So like I teach criminology. My favorite is crime in different cultures, uh, gender crime and justice. Then Rutgers recently started a new justice studies program, which is so kick-ass. It's about training the next generation of activists. And I taught a a really intensive uh, winter course there called Inequality. And I have to be honest, it changed my life. Uh, Just uh, it was students from different uh, majoring in different subjects. And we talked about just inequalities and what they look like globally. And um, this was at the same time when the capital attack happened uh, in America. Mm. And uh, honestly, uh, teaching is so interesting because I love it. It's my um, way to offload all my research findings and get really good insights. Some of my students have presented me with the coolest ideas I can take back to the field. At the same time, teaching can be so emotionally tough because uh, I don't teach about topics that are neutral. Talk, so you take on all your students' sentiments. It's not an introduction to class. Yeah. And I'm very invested because I feel like uh, it's very easy for a student to pick up when your professor isn't invested. Uh, so, yeah, when we were teaching inequalities, I remember uh, because of the time difference, uh, you know, I was teaching uh, these courses on gender inequalities and what they look like. And I remember like having dreams about it. But I think at the end of the day, I feel like um, teaching is just so important. Like it's, it's, it's how I feel like the difference in my work will come about by spreading awareness and education. So, you know, I'm trying to make a cause through my teaching style to shape these young minds to really believe like you can do whatever you want to do. Honestly, that's basically my role as an academic. It's, uh, I want, you know, students to look at me as like an actual proof of you can do work that makes a difference. You can make money and you can open up your own way of doing it. 
because that's what happened with me right i did have professors who believed in me believe in me who pushed me forward so to me teaching has been very emotional and uh, it just happened because um, i didn't expect to do so much of it but any time rutgers was offering a course which i could have taught i've pretty much taken it up and uh, yeah it's it's been interesting because i've had a couple of young students come up to me and say that because of the way i am right i'm a, a woman of color i'm still like in my early 30s 33 to be precise uh, they feel like it's inspirational to see that and i didn't know that to be honest so really yeah <laughs> no 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 i mean i you know you you don't realize uh, your positionality sometimes uh, and uh, i think and again rutgers has a very diverse student body so they've challenged me in ways that's uh, crazy because i still remember one of them wrote a paper about the ethics of divorce and convinced me about this view that i didn't think i could ever believe so i feel like you know students are such a great way to really pull you out of your comfort zone as well so to all the phd's out there as much as you hate it and you think like oh i'm only here to do research it can be life changing right yeah. because you don't only teach them well but they might actually teach you something too <laughs> oh they teach you so much and yeah sometimes you need a lot of patience to deal with it but it's it's so amazing and i'm in touch with so many of my students that's what i love i love the relationships after right like when you write them a letter of recommendation they'll be like hey i got into this and hey i'm doing these cool things with my life now so that it's really rewarding right honestly i really look forward to the end of the semester and like especially when i finish this inequality course uh, the kind of things that students wrote to me about i was really touched so yeah All right, very interesting. Yeah, so in addition to the PhD that you're doing, publishing articles, presenting at conferences and teaching, you also founded the South Asian Institute of Crime and Justice Studies. So, what is the aim of this institute and how is it going so far? So, the aim of this institute is literally what the name says, right? South Asian Institute of Crime and Justice Studies. Um I co-founded this with my advisor because it's our commitment towards really um building good context specific culturally sensitive social science research in this part of the world right south asia oh well the best way to put it is this when i started my phd uh, oh when i started doing this work and i would google stuff nothing would be thrown out so i'm trying to build an organization so that young people don't ever feel like there's no means of doing this work because there's plenty of people out there who want to study this so i'm trying to create a very clear roadmap for what they should do So uh how is it going it could be doing much much better but it's doing good <laughs> keeping in mind the current pandemic i've been working with young women mentoring mostly uh, south asian young girls who want to uh, continue this work since i have a decent amount of experience now navigating prison systems uh you know helping them understand how to conduct uh, research we're also looking at conducting kind of these partnerships with different organizations uh so you know we're just talking and it's also a little tough uh, i'm really picky Uh, about the kind of work I want to do because I feel like okay. all of my 20s I spent doing uh, work making a mental list of things I don't want to do. So now I'm being very picky on the kind of partnerships we move forward. So right now, uh you know, we're getting the name out there. Uh I'm also trying to defend my dissertation soon. So I'm um, hoping that within the next <laughs> few months you'll see a big announcement from us of what we're up to exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. So it's a lot of uh, road mapping right now and also connecting networking with other institutions. 
I don't think it's a bad thing to be picky. Um, I mean, we know that most people's research, especially in PhD, are very specific. Um, and the whole point that my supervisor also always tells me is to narrow down <laughs> the research. So, so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. All right. Um, and then the question is, uh, what are you going to do with that? You almost have your uh, dissertation finished and you're going to do your defense. And you have the institute right there. So what's next? Are you planning on staying in academia? Are you going to explore another career? What's happening? Uh, I'm going to create a career which uh, maybe people have out there, but I haven't met someone. So I definitely love teaching. I'm going to continue teaching, but uh, I'm dedicated to doing research. So, you know, my plan is to uh, work with different organizations uh, towards building, again, South Asia specific, context specific, culturally sensitive uh, research. So currently, uh, like I said, I've just been reaching out and you know, trying to come up with the people who think uh, along the same lines in times of the in kind in in terms of the kind of research we want to conduct, uh, and yeah, I, you know, uh, because of Rutgers, I was able to teach for five years. I'm still teaching uh, there thanks to remote learning, and I love it. It's my way to stay sane. Research, okay. uh, the kind of research I do, can be crazy and emotionally heavy. So I do anticipate teaching being a big, big part of my, uh, you know, life forward. But I'm not going to, I don't see myself picking a typical academic career anymore because uh, I did actually get a tenure track job offer, wow. uh, but I did turn it down. Okay. I did turn it down. And, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, should I be saying this on a podcast? But <laughs> yeah, because I, uh, you know, um, I knew that if I stayed back in America, I would have to a little bit change my research agenda. So I'm back in my context. Uh, I see uh, India is really great. Uh, you will see a lot of people doing this research who are not just in academic settings. So I'm trying to figure out a path forward, how to uh, tell these stories, not only through academia, but widely disseminate my findings. Uh, and definitely, uh, you know, I'll be submitting all these results with the government. So working with them on how do we kind of what are we supposed to do forward when we're thinking of women who are incarcerated in India and Sri Lanka? So, yeah. Okay, so you actually didn't opt, at least for the moment, right, for the tenor track. <laughs> who knows, maybe you will come back uh, if that's what you want later <laughs> in life. Um, but the point is really to be in India and to continue with the, yes. with the institutes, I suppose. Yes, yeah. The institute will be front and center of everything for the next however long it takes to raise the next generation and have people I can hand it over to. So it's a long, uh, honestly, very, very scary journey ahead. But uh, I think I'm ready. I think I've worked hard enough. And I'm going to plug this forward now. Sounds good. Um, are you also considering being uh, networked or linked to maybe a university or your former supervisor yeah. to keep those connections going? Mm -hmm. So she's co-founded it. So we're definitely doing it together. And we're, going, we're looking at a couple uh, uh, institutions like university affiliations. So what's cool in India is there are lots of schools who started to show interest in criminal justice research. So, you know, I've been speaking with them and trying to figure out, uh, like I said, like, which, which is a good fit. Because, uh, you know, I've had some bad experiences in the past where when I wanted to study women's offending, there was a lot of you can't study sex, you can't study sexual histories. Mm. I don't want that. I want to be able to tell, you know, unique, authentic stories how they are, even if they're painful to deal with. 
So there will definitely be institutional affiliations. I'm going to definitely be very uh, connected with my alma mater when it becomes my alma mater, Rutgers, uh, because Rutgers is just, it's phenomenal. They've, they've been so supportive of my work. So I'll be always indebted to the school. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I want to finish with another few short questions. Um, so when you're ready, the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? Ooh. Oh, wow. All right. Um, a most important contribution to my field is my dissertation. Uh, the mm-hmm. fact that I went in and, you know, it's a two country study with 185 interviews that it's gonna, it is that and it'll continue to be that. Yeah. That's quite impressive. Yeah. Can't wait for that to be published after the defense. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And then uh, I might guess already who it is, but who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Oh, my advisor, right? Jody Miller. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, I I always, uh, you know, even till this day, I see her fighting uh, different battles and uh, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how somebody can really fight those battles so passionately. And uh, I'm going to send her a link to hear this so uh, you know, thank you. Uh, but I'm not going to go on and on because she's going to be like, uh, you know, <laughs> but no, definitely. I, I, uh, always look up to the kind of work and, uh, the commitment and just her attitude. She's really taught me to be myself, which is, which is tough in academia, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm trying to channel that as much as possible. Again, the support is very important. Sounds very good. All right. And then the last one is how do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh, so many ways. Uh, okay. So I love sleeping. Uh, I, uh, you know, uh, if you see most people around me, they'll be shocked how much I can sleep. I, Natasha style naps are like at least six hours long. I love partying. So unfortunately, COVID has taken dancing and clubs away from us. So I miss that. Uh, and, uh, recently I started surfing. So oh. I'm hoping that that's going to be my other way to uh, unwind. I'm trying to do this thing where I spend more time outdoors. Because living in New York, I didn't get to do too much of that. So, yeah. No surfing in New York, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was way too cold. And now I just love the sun. And I love India's weather, even though it's so hot. But, yeah. So, that's that's my new plan will be like, I surf to chill. Hopefully, that's what I'll be saying. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Natasha, and for joining us today and also for this great chat. Um, and I also like to thank our audience for listening. And I want to remind everyone to check out our social media accounts and YouTube channel for more tips and advice. So see you there. Uh, yeah, and surfing, right? Um, are you taking any classes or are you just jumping on the wave? No, I took I took classes. I'm actually moving wow. uh, to be closer to the ocean <laughs> next month because I'm like, I'm going to do this. Uh, because uh, where I live right now, it, there's no like ocean, sea and all. I'm in Delhi, so I'm going to move to Goa uh, again because everything's remote. And then I'm going to like invest some time. And It's so funny because I had all these plans post PhD and now they're coming true. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to be a pro surf. No, not pro surf. I'm kidding. I just, I really think uh, it's a great way to disconnect from the world because literally it's about survival. When I was in the water, the last time I was in the water, there was a storm coming. And I remember like, I don't know, like a seven foot wave go over my head. And I remember thinking, oh my, this is scary. But it was, it was good scary. So, yeah. And I think it'll help me write better. Yeah. Right. 
a bit of a different lifestyle might help to give you that extra push to continue mm-hmm. with it. And I hear that, that Goa is the place to be. I've been to Delhi, but not to Goa. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, go to Goa. Much nicer. <laughs> 